I'm glad you added that director on the front. It sounds better. It sounds more impressive. So, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 this morning. We're taking a brief step away from Genesis, as Aaron's been leading us in the study of Genesis. Um, He's gone this morning, and so that's one reason. Uh, Another reason that's led us to Mark chapter 10, uh, one is that we're going through Christianity Explored, which is a study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, another, I think, most important reason is this is ultimately a text about discipleship. As we consider whatever church planting is going to look like, we have to understand ultimately what, what is discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so this is just one text of many in the New Testament about discipleship, being a follower of Jesus. So turn to Mark chapter 10. As you turn there, We've already prayed. I I appreciate those prayers. I was struck. I was reminded, come thou almighty king is a prayer. And I wanted to pray this publicly, not just so that we were reminded that this is a prayer, but because I need to pray this and I need God. But we sang in the second verse of that song, come and thy people bless and give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. And so we, we sang that and I pray it, that God would bless his people that he would descend and strengthen, encourage, convict, do his work in us through his word. Since this is not a a passage we've been in, we've been in um, Genesis, just a brief overview. Mark chapters 1 through 8 is the Messiah demonstrating his authority. The second half of the book, Mark chapters 11 to 16, is the Messiah's authority tested through suffering. And very at the middle, we have the three passion predictions by Jesus, and he's teaching his disciples on the way about what it means to be a disciple. So that's in Mark chapters 8, 27 to Mark 11. So we're, we're jumping in the middle, looking at Jesus teaching his disciples, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31. I'm going to be reading in the, the NIV. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around at his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. So I'll start with a question. Uh, first, let me, I'm going to clarify this in the whole sermon. Let me just uh, clarify this in case I forget. Every person in this room, by modern standards, is considered wealthy, myself included. So this is by no means me thinking I am not wealthy. This is a message you might have thought, oh no, now Josh is going to come up and start talking to people about wealth and money. Ultimately, we're going to talk about possessions and wealth. That's the main point of this whole passage. But I want to say up front, this is a message for all of us, myself included. By modern standards, every single person in this room is probably considered wealthy. So, had to say that up front. So let me ask a question. Who's first? So if you have kids and you ask that question, who's first? What is the typical answer? Me, thank you. Someone said it. So I asked, you know, Bella and Izzy, any of my daughters, who wants to ride the bicycle first? Me. Who wants to get a piggyback first? Me. Who wants to get, who wants to choose their clothes first? Me. It's always me. I want to go first. Except, uh, kind of to break my point, a couple of days ago I said, who wants to sweep up after breakfast? Silence. <laughs> no one said me first. But, you know, and this isn't just children. This is adults. So if you want to see this me first mentality, just get into your car and drive around, right? Drive around and see how we drive, how I drive. It's me first. I can exhibit this the best because I ride my bike too. When I'm on my bike, I expect to be treated first. When I'm on my car, I want those bikers to get out of my way. It's always me first. So this is the mentality in the world, me first. And yet this is not the mentality of Jesus and not the one that he calls his disciples to have. That's what he means at the end of this passage when he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is actually a a statement that Jesus makes in this teaching and he makes it a couple other times throughout the Gospels. He makes it in a different parable in in Matthew chapter 20. In fact, it's kind of this paradigmatic statement. It's a statement about how the kingdom of God is upside down. It's different than the way the world thinks. It's not first come, first serve in the kingdom of God. It's the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so he teaches this foundational principle as he's traveling with his disciples on the way and he applies it to possessions. And then he teaches his disciples about possessions and how they're to view them. Fundamentally, the disciples do not view possessions the same way that the world does. And he teaches them the right way of thinking. And and we this morning, we must align our minds and our actions with him, with his teaching and his life. And so there's three things here. The the word confounding, I was talking to somebody else, the word confounding means puzzling, maybe slightly confusing. It makes you think. And so I chose that word intentionally. I think the teaching of this passage is the confounding cost of following Jesus. It's something that makes you think. It's something that makes us think because we often think like the world. And so what does it cost to follow Jesus? The confounding cost of following Jesus is yourself, your self-dependence, and your self-centered community. So first, chapter 10, verse 17 to 22, following Jesus costs you yourself. 
And by that I mean your whole being, yourself, your heart. So there's definitely more that could be said about this section, verses 17 to 22. But what becomes clear in this teaching, this section, is the danger of possessions, the danger of wealth. So where do we see that in the passage? Let's just examine Jesus' interaction with this wealthy young man and his encounter. First, this man comes to Jesus with the, the right question. We see that in verse 17. He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice he ran up to Jesus and he is on his knees before him. I think this man, this, this signifies the genuineness of his search. He really wants to know the answer to this question. And he's run with this question, the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, one thing you need, we need to note there might be something a little bit wrong with this man's heart, with his idea, with his attitude coming to Jesus because immediately Jesus almost gives him a soft rebuke. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So I think what's happening here is this man is almost bringing, sorry, Jesus is bringing this man to question, do you really know what you're saying when you call me good? Do you really have a right view of goodness? Are you viewing yourself and this world rightly? So there's something a little bit off we see there. But he's got the right question. Eternal life. So eternal life in this passage is used synonymously throughout the passage with three other terms. So here it's eternal life. Later he says treasure in heaven in verse 21. In verses 24 and 25 it's synonymous with entering the kingdom of God. And then in verse 26 with being saved. These are all different angles different ways of looking at the same reality. Having that eternal life with God, being in his kingdom where he rules and reigns in perfect righteousness and justice, where you're saved, you're free from sin's punishment, sin's presence, sin's penalty, sin's power. And instead, you're in a place where there will be no sickness, sadness, death. That corruption is gone. They're looking at eternal life from different angles. So when this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking a good question. He's asking the right question. How can I get it? If that kind of life exists, the right thing to do, in fact, an important question for every person, how can I get that? He's got the right question and he's come to the right person. Secondly, he's come to Jesus with this question. The right question and the right person. Already through the Gospel of Mark, verses one through, uh, chapters 1 through 10, Jesus is presented as the authoritative teacher. He's called teacher often throughout these passages. He demonstrates in his preaching that he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. In fact, even his opponents recognize he teaches about the kingdom of God with authority. Both how he teaches and what he teaches. He is the authoritative teacher. And so now this man is coming to this teacher Jesus with the right question. He's coming to the right guy who can answer this question. Thirdly, we see that he gets an answer to his question. Jesus answers his question. So how does he answer it? Essentially, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This, this is the second half of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus, one or two chapters later, will summarize this as love your neighbor as yourself. So ultimately, he's saying love your neighbor as yourself. You know the commandments. 
Here's what they are. And surprisingly, what does the guy say? Now, this should be a little surprising. He says, Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, we're not going to dig into that. I want to. I really want to. But Jesus doesn't dwell on that. And that's not what he, he points to here. He goes a little bit of a different direction. And that's what I want to do too. That's where the text goes. So what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he loves him. So the Jesus looked at him in verse 21 and loved him. So I want to make a comment here about this phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So there's two ways we might understand this. He could say, Jesus looks at this man who has what may be a genuine desire to love his neighbor and he loves him for that genuine desire. That's possible. Now, I don't think that's what's going on. I think as we see this story play out, this man, we've already seen it with Jesus' soft rebuke. Do you really know what goodness is about? And we all know from personal experience, has this man really kept all of those commandments? I think what Jesus is really doing here is Jesus looks at him and he loves him by what he does next, by what he tells this man. He looks at this man who says, yes, Jesus, all those commands I've kept since I was a boy. And he loves him by exposing the idolatry in his heart. That's how he loves him. And this is a hard statement. Ultimately, this man is going to turn around and walk away. But we need to know that he's loving this man and what he does and what he says. He wants this man to turn from the idol in his heart and instead find life in Christ. And he doesn't. So, see what he says. He says, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So, again, I don't think he's talking about some specific amount of money, eternal wealth that he's going to receive if he follows Jesus' command here. I think he's talking about eternal life. Again, it's synonymous with entering the kingdom or being saved. In effect, Jesus is saying, you brought me this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I'm going to give you an answer to your question. Love your neighbor. Now he's just giving another example of what that love will look like. And he says to this particular man, what does that love look like? It's a radical act of love. And I'm going to readily acknowledge this is a, a huge act of love. This is no easy matter. He says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now, don't forget, giving to the poor is at the heart of that. It's not just get rid of your stuff. It's sell your possessions and give to those in need around you. This is an act of loving your neighbor. That's what he calls him to. But here's where we get to what I think is the heart of the matter. First, Jesus is not giving this command. This is not a command to all Christians of all generations that we are all to sell all of our stuff and give to the poor. We know that because throughout the Gospels, people entertained Jesus in their homes. People supported Jesus out of their means and kept some of those means. Into the book of Acts, while we do see examples of generosity, people had homes. They had possessions. This is not a, a command given to all Christians of all times. This is a loving command given to this particular man by Jesus, showing him the idolatry in his heart. And he's saying, he knows this man, and he's saying, you don't really love people. I know what's going on in your heart. You really don't love people. You love your possessions. And he wants this man to understand that so that he can instead turn away from his love for possessions 
and instead actually love others and love God. So he gives them the answer. And we need to, this is the sobering reminder of this section. He doesn't. He doesn't listen to Jesus. He doesn't follow him in discipleship. He walks away. He had the right answer, had the right question, gets the answer from Jesus, and he doesn't obey. He walks away. What has kept this man from obeying Jesus' simple command and enjoying eternal life by following Jesus? Now, that sounds simple, right? But remember, eternal life, everlasting life with God. He's just been told, you can have it if you do this. And he says, no, I don't want it. And why? What does he do? He chooses instead stuff. He says, no, I will take my stuff. And he walks away disheartened, sad. So again, by modern standards, myself included, every one of us is wealthy. This is a warning for us. You cannot love both God and money. God and mammon, God and possessions. Jesus demands our hearts. He demands our very self. If we want to follow Jesus, it will cost us our hearts. And the more stuff you have, the harder it is to love God and instead walk away from the life of discipleship. Let me give you an example. I think, ultimately, salvation is at stake for this man. He's walked away from God. But I don't think this stops at any point in the Christian life. And I'll attest to it in a personal example. So Russ talked about this earlier. As as many of you know, MJ and I are considering moving to North Africa where there's much less Christians, far fewer healthy churches to be a part of the work there to help establish healthy churches, to make known the good news of the gospel. And ultimately, God has made that clear to us. This is what he wants us to do. Now, this wasn't a mystical process. There might have been a little of that. This was a process examining God's word, asking, talking to people in the church, thinking about ourselves, how God has made us, how he's gifted us, the desires he's given us, and ultimately coming to the conclusion, I really believe this is what God wants us to do. I have the answer. I know what he wants us to do. Now, here's the warning. I've only been back in the States for two and a half, maybe three years, and we've accumulated a lot of stuff. I now own a house, I have a car, we have lots of toys, far too many toys, lots of clothes, many things. And honestly, I I like those things and I don't want to lose them. I know, I know what God wants us to do. This is, now this is again personal. Not everyone is called to go to North Africa and do this, but I know what God wants us to do as a family. And I feel in my heart a love for my possessions that's making it difficult. As I consider, is this what God wants me to do? Sometimes it's kind of in the back of my mind, this, this kind of mixed motivation, but I also don't want to sell my stuff. So maybe it's not what God wants me to do. It's very sneaky. It sneaks in. It, it's my heart. I love the stuff that I have. And it's a warning to all of us. Having more stuff makes it difficult to follow Jesus faithfully when he might call us to give those things up. And it will look different in every one of our lives. But the warning is for each and every one of us. Wealth is dangerous. Having more stuff can make it hard to follow Jesus. And ultimately, having stuff and seeking stuff can keep us from enjoying eternal life with God. Kind of a a church plant application. Some of us might be considered, if we end up planting a church somewhere 
in the area that might demand us to move. Some of us might be asking the very same question. And we'll be considering the same thing. If God wants me to move here, that will demand me making some sort of sacrifice. Am I willing to do it if it costs me? So in this text, we're reminded, we're going to see it is worth it. But having more stuff makes it hard. We need to be careful. So I think the first section of Mark wants us to see the reality of the danger of wealth. That's not how the world thinks, right? In the world, we think the more stuff we have, the better. The more money we have, the better off we are. And Jesus warns the reality of the danger of wealth. And the second section, I think, teaches us one reason for this real danger. So look in verses 23 to 27. Following Jesus costs you, costs me, costs us our self-dependence. Now Jesus looks around at his disciples and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, then who can be saved? So to grasp the amazement, which you see twice now from the disciples, we need to understand kind of the the Jewish worldview. And so in the Jewish mind, the, the wealthy were wealthy because they were blessed by God. In the Jewish, in the the people of Israel. And if you read the the law, so one of the first five books of the Bible, and you read through the wisdom books, it's not hard to see where that idea would come from. Let me just give you one example of what is representative. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. A great proverb. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So in effect, it sounds like, so when you honor the Lord, then you will have plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. So it's not hard to see how in a Jewish mind and in our minds today, we can assume that person has lots of wealth. It must be because they've been faithful. They've been following God's word and his law. And now we should listen to the Proverbs. We should read the Old Testament. But Jesus here corrects that misunderstanding of his own word. He's saying that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's the opposite. Wealth is not a help to entering the kingdom of God. Wealth can be a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. How can this be? What is he teaching here? And here's what I think as I look at this passage. Here's what what, what I mean. Wealth is an incubator for self-dependence. I I couldn't think of a better word. Um, Breeding ground, that sounded weird. Wealth is promotes this environment where we learn to depend on ourselves. So think about it. Wealth looks at health problems when we have wealth and resources and we say, I can fix this. We will get the best doctors. We will get the best medicine. We'll get the best resources. We'll go to the best hospitals. We can take care of this. We'll solve it. Or wealth looks at family problems and it says we'll get a bigger house if we need more space we'll get a second car a third car we'll pay for a babysitter we'll do whatever it takes we'll go on vacation we'll solve the family problems wealth looks at church problems which other churches have we don't but it looks at church problems and it says we'll get more staff or we'll get a better program or we'll we'll hire a consultant 
we'll, we'll have more resources. We can fix this problem. We can't. We've got the wealth. We've got the resources. So you can kind of see where this is going. It even looks at missions and church planning and says, we can do this with our resources. So wealth trains us to look at problems of the world and say, I can fix it. Now, I want to make very clear, none of those are bad. Medical teams, doctors, all of these things I just talked about, those are not inherently bad in and, of the, in and of themselves. The problem is our heart. The problem is our heart that looks at those problems and says, I've got the resources, I can fix this problem. And I do not doubt that this mentality bleeds into our spiritual life. I think that's what happened for this rich, wealthy young man is it bleeds into our spiritual life and we think just like we can solve the problems around us, we can solve our spiritual problems, the problems of sin. We think we can solve the problem that only God can solve. And that's exactly what Jesus then teaches. He says this, in, the, in, in answer to the question, who then can be saved? Jesus responds, with man, it, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. So a few months ago, I was talking to one of our students in Kicks, and I asked them, I think I was just trying to make small talk, and I said, so where's your school? And I got a kind of a blank look. And I said, you know, where, what part of town is it in? Or what, what are some of the roads, the crossroads there? Blank look, confusion. And I remembered, I've been there, uh, my dad used to drive us to my grandparents' house in Sedalia, Missouri. I still cannot find Sedalia, Missouri because I would just get into my dad's car and he would take us there. I didn't need to know how to get to Sedalia, Missouri. With this youth, the same story. When you get into a, if you want to go to school and you're not walking there or driving there, what do you do? You get into the school bus or a parent or grandparent's car and they take you to school. You don't have to know how to get there. Children are a picture not of strength, might, wisdom, power, but dependence. Disciples are not self-dependent. Disciples are dependent on God. That's what he's teaching in that passage. Um, He taught about, so as you read the Bible, it's important to look at context. Right before Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31, is a different story. story not about a wealthy man, but about children. And here's what Jesus says, in this story, Mark chapter 10, verse 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The point is, unless you become dependent like children, unless you become wholly dependent on God, you can't enter the kingdom. It's not going to be by your righteousness, your strength, your might, your wisdom, my works. It is by God's grace alone. It's a free gift received as such, wholly dependent on him. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. A youth in the room, and anyone who's read your Old Testament, think of all of the Old Testament stories. Okay, think of many of the Old Testament stories. Think of, for example, Israel and the Exodus, or Gideon, or David. Think of some of the Psalms. These are not stories teaching us trust in the strength of your army, trust in the strength of your wisdom, Trust in your own might. No, it's the opposite. Those stories teach us don't depend on the size of your army. Don't depend on your own wisdom. Don't depend on your own strength and resources. Depend wholly on God. 
and he will give the salvation. And here's the same. Jesus doesn't say it's difficult or hard or challenging. Jesus says, to, the, to answer the question, who then can be saved, it's impossible apart from God. So what does this mean for us? First and foremost, you can't be a disciple unless you are wholly dependent on God for salvation, receiving like a child the free gift of eternal life. But it's also, it's not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's throughout the entire Christian life. Think of what Paul taught the, the Philippians. He said, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This is why we pray. I just want to remind us. You know, we, we prayed many times throughout our, our gathering this morning. Sunday school, we prayed in our worship service. Prayer is not just a teaching moment. Prayer is not just something we do as lip service. Prayer is ultimately an act of us corporately admitting and acknowledging, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. You can do it. And we are asking you to do it. Whatever it is, whatever the problem, whatever's going on in your life, again, we, we don't disregard medical help. We don't disregard human strategizing and thinking. But we ultimately acknowledge, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers toil in vain. It will not happen. Otherwise, we start to live in this secular mentality. Ultimately, yeah, God kind of exists. He's out there. He can do things. But really, I've got most of it controlled with my resources. And that's a dangerous place to be. Let's apply that to the church plan. Eldon prayed for a pastor for this church plan. We must have God work to build this house, this church plan. Here's one reason why. Just a reminder, the church plant is not a building, right? It's people. The church plant will be a core group of people from this church, some elders, a pastor, some people, and ultimately the goal is not that some other Christians from other churches or around the area join it, but that people are saved when they hear the gospel and join that church. And we've just heard salvation is impossible apart from God. And so that means we're going to strategize we're going to give, we're going to work, we're going to preach, but ultimately we have to pray and ask that God does what only he can do. So following Jesus faithfully will cost us ourself, cost us our hearts. It will cost us our self-dependence, but also it will cost us our self-centered community. So next we read the end of the passage. Jesus looked at them. Okay, that's right. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Now, I love, first of all, Peter in the, in the Gospels. It seems like sometimes when you have that silly question that you don't want to ask, or you're afraid to ask, or even something that's a little stupid, Peter says it. Peter helps us out there. Now, this is a legitimate question. Peter says, but Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. That's a great question. All of us should be asking Peter really had left his thriving thr fishing business, which was with his family, his, his means of livelihood, to follow Jesus as a disciple. He really had. And now he's asking, what about us? What about those who give their heart to God in dependence and who depend on him for salvation wholly? What does life look like for them? Have they lost everything? 
Now hear Jesus' promise. Here's what he says. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, what was Peter supposed to understand from this promise? What does Mark want his original audience to understand? No tissue. I'm just going to use my shirt. Three keys to understanding this promise. So first, very importantly, this promise is not given to people who leave all to get more stuff. This is not a health wealth promise. Jesus isn't saying, like sometimes in the world we think, I'm going to leave everything to become a Christian because I'm going to get more. That's not at all what he says. Look at verse 29. After listing what people leave, he says, no one who has left, home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields, for me and the gospel. The disciples' desire is Jesus, not more stuff. Secondly, the promise is ultimately about eternal life. This is the very thing that that rich young man came asking about. How can I get this? I want this eternal life I've heard about and know about. The very thing that he walked away from in exchange for riches is obtained by all who cast themselves wholly on God, cast themselves on Jesus as Lord and Savior. That life which will never end that life which will be with God in his presence forever, free from sin, in a kingdom of righteousness and justice, was purchased by Jesus and will be freely given to all who trust in him, connecting to him by faith. That hasn't quite happened yet, but whoever follows him, whoever unites themselves to him, will be included in that life, is what he's saying. Third, the promise includes present possessions. So ultimately, this is about eternal life, But it does include present possessions and present stuff, people. So what is Jesus talking about in this promise? What is the answer to this mystery of how you can follow Jesus? It costs your loyalty to possessions and people, but somehow you actually gain more possessions and people. So what he's talking about is the New Testament church. The church is the people of God whose hearts are devoted to God and whose lives are dependent on God. A people who recognize the possessions I have are not mine, they are his and they are ours. That's what the New Testament church is about. So you'll notice, to point to the spiritual reality that this is the New Testament church, notice the list of things left includes Father, but the list of things gained does not include Father. That's because he's talking about the spiritual community where God is Father. Uh, He says this later in Matthew 23. Do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he's in heaven. The church is the family of God with one Father, God. Paul, he exhorts Timothy to treat older women as mothers, Uh, younger women as sisters. We see the the language of brother, sister throughout the, the New Testament. This is the family of God, the New Testament church, specifically seen in the local church. 
And so some of us, we need to hear this as a rebuke. And honestly, some days I need to hear this as a rebuke. Depends on where you're at. We need to be reminded this church does not exist to serve you and your kingdom and your purposes, your priorities. This kingdom, this church exists for God. This is God's family. And we are all about Him, His purposes, His priorities, His mission. Some of us need to hear that this morning. But honestly, many of us need to hear something else. Thank you. Thank you for living this out very well in many occasions. So keep doing what you're doing. For anyone who's been around this church, you know, many people will comment this, but when you're around the church, you recognize it has a family-ness to it. You sense the family atmosphere, the family commitment in many different ways. Many of us know this is not just a theological abstract idea. This is your lived out experience in a local community. You feel connected to people in this church because of the way you're treated as family. Let me give you one example. I could give you many. Few things will make you feel more like you're connected to someone in family than when they let you borrow their truck for a youth event and you get the truck stuck in the mud behind the church. And then... You're sheepish. Some person, whoever this is, is very sheepish and tells them, Kim, I'm really sorry I got your truck stuck in the mud. And he's like, don't worry, don't worry about it. So no big one, no big deal. Usual relaxed Kim. So, you know, that makes me feel like I've, I've messed up many things in my own family, but that feels like family right there. Possessions don't belong to me personally. The things God's has, God has given me, has given me is for his kingdom, his purposes. I'm going to share it. I'm going to be open-handed with it. I'm going to be generous with it towards the people around me. You feel that. Most of you know this is not just my experience. This is your experience in this church. And it is the grace of God. So the first thing we should do, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. The church as a collective people says, we are, we are, we are what we are by the grace of God. This is God's gracious gift at work in us through his spirit. And we want to give him praise. Praise God for the way he's shaping and has made this church. There's many things I could list there. Uh, The way people give when people are in need, when they take meals to someone who's sick, when they visit someone in the hospital, when you get cards, honestly, Part of me, I'm not, I'm a millennial, I don't like the card thing, but I kind of do like the card thing. Kind of makes you feel like a family when you get a, a note from an older person in the church who says, happy birthday, or happy anniversary, or gives my own kids a dollar for their birthday. I felt like grandma. So it was good. Thank you, Penny. My only exhortation here would be that we need to be the kind of family that adopts. And so what I mean here is that as you look out on this family, connected by faith in Jesus, acknowledging his goodness towards us, that we also remember we're the kind of family that brings in the lost, brings in the sick, brings in the sinner, and wants them to enjoy what we know to be true about the goodness of the church. Now, you all know, if you don't, this church is far from perfect. You know that. But, Many of you also know how good it is to be a part of the people of God. It is a good gift. And the church has gotten a bad rap, in some cases for good reason. But 
if you've experienced the goodness of being a part of God's family by being a part of this local church, don't you want others to experience it? What time is it? I had a kind of a, a bad experience Friday with this kid. I was trying to love him. I wanted to try and help him out. MJ told me the proverb, don't rebuke a mocker. Well, he, I got all sorts of profane language. He was very offensive, angry, physically aggressive. And I'm just thinking of this kid. He's probably really hurt. Sorry. Probably from a really broken home. Really angry. And what he needs to know Sorry, I wish you guys knew what he needs to know. What he needs to know is the gospel. He needs to know that God forgives sinners. He saves sinners, broken, messed up people like you and me, and he brings us into his family by faith in his son. And he makes us different. So, Mike, thank you. (laughs) Family. Hannah, I'm sorry, she has misophonia, and so she's very sensitive to noise and sounds, and whenever I wipe my nose and (laughs) blow, I know that she doesn't like that either. Family. So, what I was trying to hit on and what I want to hit on is that we want to be a family that adopts, a family that proclaims the good news to those who are outside of this family and brings them in because we know how good it is to be in God's family by faith through Jesus. So, ultimately, there is a cost. Following Jesus faithfully will cost. It will cost us our hearts. It will cost us our self-dependence. It will cost us our self-centered community. But it's worth it. Jesus said in the Gospels, in Matthew 13, He is the treasure worth selling everything for. So let me pray. Lord, I I also want to thank you. Just listening to a podcast earlier in the week, how gracious you are to use your word. And as we cast ourselves on your word to accomplish your purposes, that we have great hope. That's what you use to sanctify. That's why we can pray, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And so I ask, whatever I've said that has been in line with your word, Lord, in your grace and kindness to your people, that through your spirit, you'd make us different. You'd make us more and more like the people that you want us to be, like your son. Conform us to his image. Give us hope that one day we will be a community that is blameless and righteous because of the work of your son on the cross. Make us a people who who want others to be invited into this community, who's ready to share, who's ready to reach out to the lost, to the orphan around us spiritually. So we just ask, do what we can't. Change us, be at work in us through your spirit. And I do thank you, Lord. Thank you for this good gift of your church. Thank you that I get to be a part of it. I pray that we would give you the gratitude and thanks you're due for making this church what it is. Lord, we give you praise. Glorify your name in this city through us. Amen.